Welcome to the latest episode of Rand's Rant. My guest today is Alex Good. Alex is an English professional rugby player playing in the Viva Premiership for Saracens. Alex has also played for his country 21 times. And Alex, I'd just like to say thanks a million for coming on the show and hope all is well with you after your long break off and probably getting back into pre-season now. Uh, yeah, all good. Uh, lovely to be on it. Richie, I'm excited. Um, I'm told by yourself that it won't be too much rugby, which is always nice. Um, But uh, unfortunately, yeah, I have been training for uh, a while now. Um, So uh, not not too much rest, unfortunately, even with the season starting later. Yeah, no rest for uh, pro sportsmen these days. Rightly so, eh? We realize we go walkabouts and we get up to no good. Exactly. Firstly, I, I want to get into your past. I want to say your past, I mean your childhood. And <laughs> like when you were at a young age, like what are some of the earliest memories you have? From what I've read, you were quite talented in a multiple array of sports. And like what are some of the earliest memories you can think of with regards to school days, playing sports, and stuff like that? I think some of the earliest memories, there's, there's a few funny ones of my mum. Couldn't ever get my my shorts white. I used to wear white shorts to my local rugby club. She could never get them white. And so she was always jealous of other parents. And so she had this genius idea to um, bleach them and thought this would be a great idea. Um, And she bleached them. And uh, first tackle of the game, before that, sorry, she was as proud as punch, telling everyone how white they were, how proud she was. She finally, you know, found the secret ingredient. Uh, First tackle... Um, poor me, uh, I get tackled and the shorts just shred in front of my eyes and I'm running around with no shorts on in my small little white fronts as a, <laughs> as a, as a nine-year-old. Nine so, um, yeah, that was uh, an early memory. But, no, I think early on I sort of remember just loving sport. But um, we had this thing in – I was from Cambridge, which isn't renowned for producing many sportsmen. And um, – we had this thing uh, uh, where it was like uh, you go along and it was to try and be crowned like Cambridge Sportsman or something like that, the name was. And it was basically just a load of activities and you got measured throughout the day. And I remember doing this every year and really enjoying it. So it'd be from um, some swimming exercises, uh, swimming things that you were, you got points for how quick you did it. Um, there would be uh, like how many squat thrusts you could do, how many um, – tennis balls you could throw in a bucket, um, all the scientific measurements, um, you know, hitting shuttlecocks, um, doing an obstacle course. And it was all like points. And at the end of the day, you, you found out how many points you had. And, um, yeah. and I remember it and I used to love it. And I remember winning it one year and I, uh, as like a, a nine-year-old or something like that and thinking, wow, maybe even an 11-year-old. And thinking, wow, that's awesome! And like, I think I always knew I was competitive, trying to keep up with my brother, who was three years older than me, and his friends. But I think stuff like that really hit home as to, oh, you're quite, you're quite sporty, you're quite good at this. And um, and then as you get older and older, I remember um, a big football game we had, uh, local rivals. Um, I was playing for Cherry Hinton Lions, and we were in the sort of Cambridgeshire Cup. Um, and we're playing a team called Burwell. Had all these you know, county football players who I played against and with, and we knew quite a lot of their players. And we only had a couple. We had like two or three of us, and they had sort of seven, I think it was. And they were the best team, and they 
they'd won their league and we were in a slightly different league because it was done in geographical locations. So in North Cambridge, we were, um, I think, down in South Cambridge. And we came to this game and um, they were the favourites, sort of the FA Cup final, if you like, for us. Yeah, exactly. Um, playing at the... Um, the Cambridge Stadium, which was the most exposed uh, field in the world with the smallest tin shed of a stand um, next to a golf course. So pretty hard as a probably 11, 12 yard to kick the ball 30 yards without it blowing off course and going to one touchline. Um, exactly. Yeah. And we had this game and we won 2-1. And i never forget it because everyone wrote us off before. Um, we are going to win by a load of a load of goals and yet we got to it and we just dug in and fought so hard and we went one nil down to start and um you know everyone was like oh here we go and we just rallied and even that one goal and and then forget it it was a rubbish goal and we actually were like it's okay I remember thinking saying it's okay it's all right we're betting them we're betting them and I don't think any of my teammates believed me or other people were saying it but we just kept fighting and we got a goal back and then we just kept going and you could see it looking back now. I didn't see it at the time, but looking back now, you could just see it in our team. We just had the momentum. And I think it's quite mm. apt at the moment. You see so many sports teams and I know at Saracens we talked about last year in the big games, just got to grab that momentum. And if you have it, then you're flying. And if you don't, you can just, it's so hard to get, get out of it, of that rut. And, um, and that's just how we, I remember looking back thinking, right, we've got this. We've got to keep pushing, keep pushing. And, at that age, there is actually, ironically, in football, a slight territory game in that you just know that you're constantly squeezing them in their half. You're getting hold of the ball. You're going that. You're going forward. They're going back. And I just think we felt that, and we had more energy, and we eventually got a goal with ten minutes to go, and we won it. And um, it's kind of like a massive feeling of uh, just you know pure pride for us, the team. You know, just amazing how happy we were, how much we loved it, and just. One of the first things that sort of came across of not defying but beating the odds, really. Um, so that was great. And there's, there's lots of rugby memories, but certainly those two are slightly different from, the, uh, I guess, my usual rugby memories, I suppose. Hmm. And as you said, there was a good variety there. And even having the older brother probably spurred you on a little bit for kind of banter purposes, saying who was better at what and who was winning the most, etc., etc. And like it says, like what I've read that you had a period with Ipswich Town Football Academy before you went on to Saracens. So like the question I have there is at what point did it come to choosing between one or the other? Was this a pretty natural decision or was there ever a case where it was like, are you going to be a professional footballer or professional rugby player? Look, I'm I'm quite philosophical on this stuff. I think there's far too many rugby players who've been quoted or coming out and saying oh, I could have been a football player or a player and I mean let's be honest there are millions and millions of kids doing trying to be footballers and I think I'd like to be quite honest about it I, I was at Ipswich for a year it certainly wasn't just before Saracens uh, it was back when I was 14 15 and I was a uh, 14 15 yeah I was a, a good player I was a good player but do I think I would have made it professionally probably not um, mainly because I would turn up at a football game every weekend and my teammates would be there two hours before having their Lucasade, their food, they'd have their grandparents, their parents, their sister, their brother, 
their mates all watching, looking forward to it. And I would turn up, having missed the whole warm-up, muddy knees, changing in the car from a rugby game, flung out by my mum and just like run out there and, and love it and just be competitive and want to win. And, and, and I did love it, but my passion was rugby. And I think I know why I was successful at rugby because I believe in life if you have a passion for something, you're always likely to be to be a success because the hard work you need to put in for any walk of life to be successful in anything if you have a passion for it, it doesn't seem hard work. So I was willing at 15 years old, 16 years old, to go out before school and kick rubber balls with my dad um, and then have breakfast and then go to school or after school because I never saw it really as a chore. I saw it as something fun and enjoyed it. Um, and, of course, I then got better, you know, the just by playing a lot, 10,000-hour principle, however you want to say it, just by doing it repetition again and again, I just got better and better and improved. So in regards to football, did a lot of football. Um, my mum actually said she wasn't taking me to Ipswich anymore because I was falling asleep on the way there, falling asleep on the way back. She was a school teacher. Um, it was an hour and 15 minutes if there was no traffic just to get there. Um, and she just said, I'm not taking you anymore. And, and I didn't really argue that much. Um, and then Cambridge United came in and sort of said, oh, well, you're not going there, so we, we'll put you in. But they said, look, we can't put you in our centre of excellence straight away because, um, uh, you know, obviously people have fought really hard. So we have to put you in the trial period with with another sort of eight players or six, eight players. And we're only offering two spots, but, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. You come from Ipswich. And I remember them saying the six-week trial period, I remember saying, um, yeah, apologies, I, I can't be there for three of the six weeks. And they're like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm going on holiday with my family for two of the Saturdays. Um, and I didn't tell them, and I think I, did, I actually lied about the other ones because I knew I had a rugby game, on a big game mm. on the Saturday and I couldn't play. And I said I couldn't do that as well. And they were like flabbergasted that this was this unbelievable opportunity and I was pretty relaxed about it and saying, oh, well, I'm on holiday with my family and my, my my family aren't going to change my holidays, <laughs> which was true. They wouldn't. And I think that probably some, they were a bit like mesmerized that I'd be, that I didn't care and it wasn't everything to me. And I went in there for a year a bit and it was just, I think, you know, I love playing, but they were trying to stop me playing sport on Sundays. They were trying to stop me playing for my local um, club. And I was like, look, I'm going to play rugby and football on Sunday like I always have. And, and so I left that and, and played for Cambridge City, which is very relaxed and chilled. But do I think I could have been a professional football player? I'm competitive enough to be at that point. Um, maybe a professional, yeah. A premiership player? Pfft, I, I doubt that. I think they are very unique um, in the hard work, uh, an element of luck of being in the right academy, right time. Ultimately, and unless I stayed at Ipswich, I never would have been able to make it because I had friends in the team who were better than me at that age. And they went on mm. and had trials at Nottingham Forest, Sheffield Wednesday. One went down to West Ham and they never made it. Um, and, you know, maybe as a someone who's come through to professional sport, you say but there's something slightly different. I'm, slight, I'm wired slightly different to get to this level. Um, and that may be true, but I just don't think I would have been able to make it as a professional football player. There's too much competition, too many players. So in reality, I'm not only happy that I chose it because I love rugby um, to a higher level and, and more so, but I'm also happy because 
I think it was a, the right decision for me in terms of I never would have been able to play for England and win European Cups like I have done uh, with rugby. So I guess to answer your question full circle, um, I kind of didn't realise at the time, but looking back, I wasn't as bothered by football as I was by rugby. And, you know, Sunday, I never missed a rugby game ever. I would miss a football game for rugby. And I guess that's where my passion came from. And, you know, you know, looking back now, the passion's everything. Yeah. Well, that's a good point because even at those early early doors when you're at that age, you're very much going with your heart sometimes rather than your head. But as you said, if you're going to endure a lot of tough times and a lot of early mornings, you've got to be passionate about it. So that does ring true. And that leads me on to when you say eventually joined Saracens in 2006. Like back then, Saracens wasn't the big, well-renowned European force sure. that it is now. Like were they the only team that offered you a spot in their academy? Was it just because you were nearby from a location point of view? Um, um, how did that all come about? It's quite a good story, actually. Well, not quite. It's quite a random story in that I was uh, gone to school. Um, so at 16, I played uh, Eastern Counties um, from Cambridgeshire. I'd then gone to London South East, and a well-known Danny Cipriani had turned up at the last trial for London South East, and he played the year before. And he actually played really badly. And I mem- remember thinking, like, I completely outdone him. I didn't really know who he was, but there was always, like, talk about this this bloke. And I was like, who, who is it? And at that level, it's before kind of Twitter, I don't know, before you really knew about schoolboy kids. Now, some of the other oh, kids yeah, yeah. Knew, knew about him from um, playing uh, club club under-16 national tournaments and stuff. But I'd never done that coming from Cambridge. We weren't that good. And maybe that was quite good that I had never heard of him. So we played, and I remember playing unbelievably well. I scored a tap penalty, a kick from two kicks from the touchline. My team absolutely smashed his team. We won. I played really well. I never forget it. Played really well. Maybe helped by um, a, li- a, li- uh, a, less- a lesser known centre, Jordan Turner Hall, <laughs> yeah. uh, who was who was my inside centre, who was the same size then as he was when he played professional rugby. So that was quite handy. There's um, always those type of guys. Just grew yeah. way too quick and stayed the same. Exactly, but so he did really well, and he went off at half time, claiming he had a sore BCG. And I remember thinking, "Cool, well, if that's my my competition. I've got this." Mm. And anyway, turned up at the London Southeast camp, and I, I mean, I tip my, t- I, you know, I don't lie about it. He was unbelievably good at that age. Ships, to be fair to him. Um, and anyway, when we got to the camp, it came clear he was well, one. The coaches were going to play him the whole time, and two, he was pretty good. Like, there's no doubt about that. And the England selectors had nailed him in to be the England starting flyer for under 16s. But I think, never forget it, and this kind of shape, I guess, where we go from here, in, in that he, um, we went to the England trials. So it was uh, obviously London South East play Southwest, play Midlands, play North. Or you, you played two of them. So I think we played Midlands first and then the North second. We went, and the idea was that. Your first team plays the first game, and then everyone else who hasn't played plays the second game. And all the other regions did that. For some reason, London South East coaches decided that they were just desperate to win and show that they were the best coaches, the best region. So they started SIPs in the second game. And I remember thinking, this isn't great. And they sort of said, Look, you'll come on nice and early. And then they said, half time at least. So I was like, okay, I'll get a half. Um, and you, you know, you're 15 years old at this point. You can't really 
you know, you can't really argue with these school yeah, exactly. teachers. Gets to half time, oh, I'm just going to keep on a bit longer, so you know, keep going. I basically got 15 minutes, 20 minutes of this whole camp to try and play to the point where every kid had a like a rating from the select and stuff. I didn't even have one, and so we come end up getting called back so they hadn't seen anything of me the next week and they still don't have a rating of me so I got put at the sort of bottom luckily got through but I never forget the coaches it was like I had this feeling inside me of if that's what it is that sort of pain of not being selected or not being first choice that that drove me on to be a better player um, and I think I from then on then went to England under 16s not the A team but the B team so third third rung on the ladder so probably the fifth choice fly half and even that I was the second choice to start with but showed my worth we played the under 16 A team I played really well and felt you know what I'm better than these guys but nothing changed and I remember being quite angry about it knowing that I was a better player than these other guys but for some reason you know I was at the bottom of the ladder um, and I think I'll, I'll probably continue later on to tell more but that kind of not being first choice and sort of not rejection is the wrong word, but being on the back burner um, kind of helped me. I, th- I think helped me a lot. You know, the whole whatever, you know, it doesn't break you, makes you stronger. Mm. Um, I, I think having some, not having plain sailing, not everything going really well for you, um, having to come back with some rejection or not being picked and remembering them. I think it is quite it was quite important and made me a stronger player and more determined player and and that sort of period of 15 16 to sort of 21 or 20 was really important for me and and went really well and and and, and sort of made me the person I am now in a sense and but to your question I then went to Oakham school in the Midlands um quite well known for Tom Croft Lewis Moody a lot of Leicester players, um, uh, and they, they didn't have a link, but being half an hour from Leicester and good at rugby at that stage, they kind of did have a link in a sense. Anyways, yeah. um, played my first year, played pretty well, and uh, Dusty Hare, the selector for Leicester, came down a few times, um, never really said anything, a few comments to the head coach, who he knew really well, who he played with, a guy called Ian Smith, Dossa Smith ex Leicester coach. He um he played with Dusty and, and they chatted and it was always like quite negative comments that got fed back to me. And I, you know, and I guess, you know, one or two you get and you want to get better. After a while you're a bit like, well, has he got anything positive to say about me? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um and we sat down at the end at the end of the second term, must have been or third term, and he came to lunch and they put us up on the top table. So everyone who was having lunch could see me and the, the coach and this Dusty here having lunch. And I remember thinking, feeling quite nervous. And he basically um, told me I wasn't, you know, what I could do better for 20 minutes and wasn't very positive. And generally I got the impression, even at a young age, that he wasn't really that into me as a player. Yeah. But he was kind of doing a favour for Ian Smith, Dossa Smith and a few others because, um, you know, he – you know, he'd had a few other players come through at Leicester. They'd done well, and that he could do the right, do a nice thing. And and he kind of said that, um, oh well, you know, if you can come, you can come down pre-season if you want. And I was like, oh well, can you help out with anywhere to stay or like just in a room or something? And he goes, oh well, no. Um, you sort yourself out. I'm sure you've got one of your your rich friends around here who has a house. <laughs> and I was like, 
I actually didn't because my mates didn't live in Leicester around Leicester at all. And I was like, blimey. Um, and it kind of hits you a bit. You're like, it's not a really a, a welcoming sort of invite, no, is it? You know what I mean? Not? And I was like, I don't know. It was a weird one. And my dad just happened to go on holiday. And on holiday, he met Mike Katz, mother-in-law of all chance. I mean, this is twist of fate here. Yeah. Um, mother-in-law and chatted away. And she said she lived near Bath. And she said, oh, well, you know, he can always come and stay with me if you want. She lived 20 minutes outside and she lived on her own and everything. And next thing I know, we had spoke. I knew that the Bath Academy manager had been interested previously from some of the under-16 stuff. He'd come down and watch the games. It happened to be at Millfield in Somerset. And he was really, uh, really like, oh, I want to get you down. Really liked me, very enthusiastic. He said they'll pay for expenses. And I said, okay, fine. So I went and did a pre-season um, at Bath because I felt they wanted me a bit more. Spent about six weeks down there or so, five weeks. And it was really good for my development. Um, I, did I think I'd ever play for Bath? Not necessarily. The link to the academy, to the first team, was non-existent. Um, it was an Aussie coach who didn't really care much for the um, academy. He just, they, that was very separate. But yeah. it was good for me and my confidence to do some full-time training. And then went back to school, a uh, much more confident player that even the next year. Did my final year, and as it was coming up, um, did England 18s. Again, wasn't even first choice, um, which angered me even great, greater because I was new at this point. I really was playing very well and felt more and more confident in myself. And then went, I had a luck, well, because I'd stayed with Mike Cat's mother in law, he kind of got wind of it, Mike Cat. Um, we had one conversation, and when it came to signing a contract, um, Bath were very interested to keep me there. But it was a long way from home, and as I said, there wasn't really a link with the academy to the first team. London Irish then came in with Mike Cat as sort of saying he was going to mentor me. And I went and looked around and was really quite keen on going there. It was a, a good link. They'd had the likes of Topsy Ojo, the Armitage brothers come through the academy and yeah, yeah. done well. Coleman team. Yeah, and they were at this stage. They were up and coming. They were, I think, two two years later. They got to the final and lost, but they were semi final of Europe and good team. And then last minute, I had signed the contract for Irish at home. Had it there. I got a call from a guy called Mark Mapletoft, and he he was at Saracens and he said, "Look, I'd seen you. He'd seen me at this Loughborough camp at the end of the year. Thought you were brilliant. Um, really were by class above others." Um, I want you to come and I'll mentor you as an ex-fly half and there's an easy path into the first team after Glenn Jackson. So, you know, you can see exactly how you'll get in. And a mixture of factors. Uh, he was very persuasive. He was a fly half and it was very close to, it was close to my home. It was about 35 minutes away and my uh, dad's five brothers and sisters or four at least were within five, ten minutes. So I knew they would be able to look after me and, and be close. Uh, added in, I made a deal with Cambridge Rugby Club, my local club, that I could go on loan and play there for the first team, who were only two leagues down from the premiership. So it all kind of worked pretty well. And so I went there. And that was how I um, decided on Saracens, really. And I have to say, the first couple of years were looking back, were mayhem, really. <laughs> um, mayhem for me. I wasn't professional enough in my first year. I didn't 
understand what it took to be a professional. You know, you come out of school, you think um, you're a, you're a good player, um, you do well, but ultimately you know that. Well, you think that you know you've done England 19s at this stage, and you think you kind of not made it, but you're a little bit unaware of how it, what it takes to be a top end professional. And it took for me the penny to drop probably the year after or like towards the end of that first year that I had to work harder, do more and prepare better uh, and not be going back and forth to Cambridge and seeing my mates and stuff. And I think that was quite an important lesson, uh, really. And um, and certainly one I had to understand myself and say, yeah, and I've been at Southampton's ever since, really. And I always say it's like being at two different clubs in the sense that Basically, when I was first at Saracens, we, we weren't successful. It was a lot of cliques. Um, it was a um, kind of not a great environment. The older guys were pretty horrendous to the younger guys. You, you're always on your toes, didn't feel great about yourself, kind of belittled. And but, like what, what – sorry to interrupt you. No, like what examples, like when you say they were belittling you and they weren't as – nice to you as they probably should have been obviously there needs to be a bit of them leading the more mature guys the experienced guys need to set examples but like were think, they, how did they overstep the line there i think you had to bear in mind it was a very unsuccessful organization um where we went on the odd cut run, cut run but ultimately we weren't a good team we never there was no core there was no culture there was no heart we brought in players overseas who were past it who picked up a paycheck um, you know, people like Tane Randell, they people laugh that they never once lifted the weight. He sat on the spin bike with the Sun newspaper and just <laughs> read that and, and took it along. And, and you laugh, and it's a funny story, but if that's just kind of senior player doing that, it's not really a role model. Now, I guess in a different culture, a successful one like we've had over the last two years, Scott Berger won't mind me saying, he never lifted the weight. I never saw him lift the weight. And he never mm. did his whole career. He sat there with a rolling pin, uh, detenderizing de- his muscles each morning. <laughs> then went and got a coffee and, and chilled out. And But he was the most competitive person you'll ever meet on the field and would do anything. On game day, he was an animal. Um, and, and, just, and maybe it's a different culture, so everyone else was already pushing. And you know, one or two people like that you can, you can deal with. Um, because the rest of the organisation is so functioning so high. But that's yeah. just an example. But really, the older guys were just, um, whether they just weren't that secure in themselves or it was just very bully-esque. Like you'd be having a pro- go towards the protein station as a cabinet player and the older guys would come over and go, what are you doing? Leave that alone. And, you and you know, you'd have a, a big old burly prop who was 30 years old, gnarly. He would probably, you know, he was getting fights all the time in training. Yeah telling you as an 18-year-old, 60 kilos dripping wet, that you're not allowed to touch the protein, get away from it, and you sort of do, and then he laughs at you, and they all laugh and go, ah, look at you, oh, yeah. And stuff like that, you're like, oh, brilliant. Or yeah. going, up to, uh, going up to the first team training for the first time, um, and, you know, lads sort of smashing you and sort of off the ball and laughing about it. And it's just like a very bully-esque mentality, and, and sort of taking the piss out of you. But then as soon as you start playing the first team and do well, as if they're best mates with you. And you're like, yeah. hang on a minute, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Exactly, and so I guess yeah. my point was always to, and they wouldn't socialise with you at all unless you were, you know, they would say, 
that's that's life when you make when you've made it will socialize you as like a, an incentive but that's not a good way to be and they weren't good in that sense they were very much um as i said very bully-esque and it just wasn't a nice place to be and when the chips were down no one would fight for each other and there was no culture so and, and on so, that, yeah, sorry, that's uh sorry to interrupt again on that topic of culture a big element of that is obviously when Brendan Venture came in and you've spoke on the record about it and so have the many other players who went through that transition from pre and post Brendan Venter. He basically transformed the squad into understanding what actual effort and work rate was and the results dramatically improved. But like apart from just saying things and I know you said there was, I think you called it Black Wednesday or something when he got rid of so many yeah. players. Like apart from little things like that, how did he go from taking a damaged squad, a damaged culture, and then, as you said, took six, 12 months to transform them into one of the best teams in England really and ultimately found, sorry, uh, lay down the foundations to make Saracens to become one of the most successful teams in Europe? Well... I think it's really hard to say it. Uh, examples I can give, but it is two clubs. Brendan came in and he got rid of um, very highly paid players, older players who weren't giving everything for the cause. And what was left was uh, a journeyman or uh, all right people who would go hard, or go pretty hard and a lot of young guys. A few sprinklings of players he, he needed, like a Glenn Jackson. Um, I think he probably would have, when he found out, probably would have got rid of Justin Marshall if he could, but I mean, he kept him. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, some senior players, but only ones that he really felt were going to offer something and get on board. And he, he was very clever in that. He then brought in a load of players from South Africa, and not all were successful. There were guys you never heard of who left in pre-season, they were so bad. Um, <laughs> like they couldn't run eight on the bleep test. And Brendan, I'll tell you how positive he was. He was relentlessly positive with everyone. He'd be like, you know what? This guy, Frick Venter, would do the um, bleep test. And he'd be like, he'd get like a level seven or something like that, eight. Which is like, it's crawling. You're crawling along. Yeah. Um, and then even the props these days will get probably like 12 or so. so actually, no, I'm thinking of the the other... The, a different test, the yo-yo test. So he got about six, which is basically walking, jogging. <laughs> um, and no other prop had got less than eight and a half, nine or something like that. And that's that's a pretty unfit prop after the end of pre-season, uh, before the start of pre-season. And this guy comes in, does it, does terribly. Brendan goes, it can't be that bad, can't be that bad. He must have asthma. Well, there must be an excuse for it. So he gets tested for asthma, does fitness for the next four weeks, like every day, nothing else, just fitness. Does it again with the inhaler, and instead of being six and a half, he gets five and a half. And it's gone down. <laughs> it took that, and eventually Brendan goes, "All right, okay, we'll let him go." Yeah, but relentlessly positive uh, and everything he did. It really, what he did though, the cleverest things were the um, effort error and skill error, which uh, you, you might have might have been alluded to earlier. Was he basically said that if um, if you uh, drop a pass, throw a bad pass, uh, uh, miss a kick, um, 
you know, miss a tackle. He said, that's a skill error. And that is on me and the coaches, us coaches. We need to upskill you, improve you. And you're like, oh, bloody hell, that's, that's good. It's not, you're not going to blame us when, we, when we're crap. Okay, crap. <laughs> sounds good. He said, but yeah, an effort error, you don't work back quick enough. The opposition beat you back. You don't get off the floor quick enough. You're lazy. He says, that, you'll never play for my team again. I'll drop you straight away. That's unexcusable. Mm. And everyone's like, oh, okay. And he, he spelt it out. And then it wasn't just that he did that. He also then showed you examples of what he wanted, of effort, and how we were going to go about it. And he made it quite easy in that all we were really asking for was you to work incredibly hard. And, and actually, you tell people to do that. That's quite easy. And what it did, I didn't realize at the time, none of us did, was he wanted people who were going to work hard. And ultimately, they may not be as skillful as someone before them, but because they had that work ethic, they were going to do their extras, extra passing, extra tackling, extra kicking after the sessions, before the sessions. And they were going to get to the level of the more skillful person within a matter of weeks, months, or a year, and basically go ahead of them. And that was really quite a clever way of looking at it. And he didn't want uh, talented people who didn't put you know effort in or fight for the squad. So that's basically one of the main things. He also... Him and the CEO created a wonderful environment where he went on these trips. Um, your families were looked after. You had a crash. Um, we had a good time. And people really enjoyed coming to work because he said that all I require from you is 7% of the week. He worked out of how many hours we were training. To be fair, in these days, we weren't training that much under Brendan because hmm. he, he wanted to go home quickly. <laughs> Um, and he got bored, but we would be there for 7% of the week. He said, that's when I need you to focus so hard. The rest of the time, do what you want, relax. But for 7%, I want you zeroed in because that's what you're on the field for. And you know what? That's, you know, that is like, uh, it was quite a clever way of doing it and making it such a small amount um, and us to understand that it's, it's really not much he's asking from us. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're here, you're unbelievably focused, and you give everything. Um, and, and and things like that being you know tre- treated unbelievably well, and in return, work incredibly hard. Um, were quite easy because you didn't want to be out of the environment. You didn't want to be. Uh, you don't want to get let go because it was a lot of fun. You did have enjoyment, uh, and we'd never been treated like this before. So he did a lot of things like that, which were, were very different. Um, and he really tried to create uh, a nice environment. It's all about being positive with each other, um, you know, appreciating what people brought to the party, what they not what they couldn't do. You know, the English way or men a men's way, maybe not English way, is to obviously not abuse each other, but take the mick out of each other for what you can't do or how bad you are at this or that. Never to go, mate. You know, you're unbelievably good at tackling. Like it's un- it's incredible. Or you give me so much energy. When you beat a player or two, like it's, it's sick to watch. Yeah. No one ever says that. It's men. No. So he kind of tries to get us to improve on that side of it and how, how good it made people feel. And really, it's hard to explain, but he made people feel unbelievable. Mm, I've never known a team be so happy, even the guys who aren't picked. Yes, he was very blunt and told you exactly to your face why you're not picked. So you couldn't really be angry at him. But at the same time, 
he was just so positive to the guys on the bench. He'd be like, look, all I say, all I say to you is at 50 minutes, you're going to come on and you're going to be unbelievable for me. You are going to make eight tackles, 10 carries. You're going to be incredible. I can't wait to see you play. And it's amazing the confidence someone has when they know they're coming up 50 and they come on at 50. They know they're trusted for one. You're not getting the last two minutes of a game when you feel like deep down you know the coach doesn't trust you. He mm. trusts you and he wants you to do unbelievably well and you can't wait to see it. And and the effect it had on players and how much better they played was, was something I've never seen. I can imagine. And was there one thing like I noticed and you've won several leagues, you've just come off the back there of a double. And one thing I've noticed is say the first time you get to that final against Leicester domestically, you come up just short. It was still to this day one of the best finals I've watched. And if you look at, say, last year when Leinster humbled you, so to speak, in that in that knockout game in the Aviva, you then bounce back to win the Champions Cup this year. I suppose this is a two-part question. Number one, say early on, say after that Leicester game, was there ever any doubts in that period? Because as you said, the culture had been built, but was there doubt as in maybe we're just not quite the top of the chain? Maybe we'll just be the second or third best team? Or was there actually a firm belief that you were going to be the best team in England and soon enough the best team in Europe? I break it down a bit. I think there's certain phases. That first year, that surprised all of us. We got, Brendan got an element of luck. We were the most basic team in the world in the first half of the season. But yet we won the first 10 games we had, which was like a record. Um, and it was unheard of for us because all we did was we had three phases. And if we didn't get anywhere, we kicked it or went for a drop goal. Mm. Because Brendan, being a doctor, was very stats-based and believed that the what the stats said was were that if you held the ball for longer than three phases, it was more likely you were going to give a penalty away than you were to score any points. So he said, if we're going nowhere, after three phases, you can do what you want for three phases, and then we kick it. Or you go for a drop goal. We get it back from a restart, and we go again. So, I mean, and with that tactic, and just being, I kind of, I feel like London Irish had done the up and in defence at that stage. Yeah. Well, And Wasp would, had done it. Uh, ours was slightly different, but it was just as aggressive at this stage. And Brendan was the original to bring it into London Irish way back when he was playing um, and, and then Wasp took it with others and, and Irish always had it we weren't really an up and in we were just very aggressive and very a Brendan, Brendan team in that we were just dogs like scrapping for everything and getting off the line and just going for every single team we played against and it got us to 10 wins then Christmas time we got three or four losses in a row and it wasn't the wheels coming off, but we were then struggling again. And there was unrest and boys weren't happy how we were playing. And Brendan had a masterstroke. Um, he went down to, we went down to Brighton, I think during the Six Nations or something like that, where we had a bit of time and we had no England internationals except Steve Borthwick, I think. And um, we went down there and we... Had a bit of a night out. No, we had a, a frank meeting for about three or four hours in a big room. And Brendan said, right, I want anyone can say whatever they like at this meeting. I won't judge. I'm not worried. I just want you to talk talk to me about how you feel, 
what you see, how you get out there, what, what you're going through. And he said, nothing, you won't be judged, but if you come with me, come at me or and moan and are angry about something and there's no fact behind it, no base behind it, it's just, oh, I don't like the train facility or no. uh, we play a crap style, don't, be, don't expect me to listen to you genuinely. But if you come with a, well, I feel like, and so the first person who sat, stood up, I think, was, I think, Rod Penny. And he said, not a older player, but not the most senior person ever. Wasn't playing every week at all. He said, look, I feel like we're going to games and the first thing we do is just kick the ball and, and we just lose a lot of energy from that. Maybe if we ran the ball a little bit, we'd gain some energy and then if it doesn't work, we could kick it. Other teams, they get it, they run at us and they're energised and they're ready and they're enjoying it and we just, we just lose a lot of energy. And Brendan said, good point, okay, take that on board. And other people talked a bit and I've never seen such a transformation. We went from the most boring team in the world, never running it at all. So then after this meeting, I think we had eight games till the final, or and the final was the eighth. And we were the most attacking minded team in the world. We ran everything. We had this middle pot system and we just ran it from all over. And we got to the final doing it, which was quite incredible. Um, and when we lost, I have to say, um, you know, it was the most devastating loss of my career at the time because I thought we're never going to get to final again. It was this fairy tale journey. Um, a lot of my really good friends, mates, who I'd got come friends with in the first team were leaving and it hit me pretty hard. And the way you lose, um, did I think we'd be a dynasty at that point? No, far from it. And was like, you know, that's, that's just unfortunate. We've missed out, but here we go. Anyways, we um, next year we struggled at the start again. Taxes are bad. Get to the middle of the year, we start to improve, and again we get to a semi final, and we just sneak through against Gloucester. But you still underwhelming, um, you know, Leicester. So Leicester are the overwhelming favourites yeah, for the final. That. And that was incredible what we did that day. We were unbelievable in the first half, brilliant. And then we hung on and then the defensive effort in the last seven and a half minutes of extra time. 30 phases was, or something I remember. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it said seven minutes past 80. You'd never see anything like it. And we, at actual play though, not just because of scrums and stuff like the, the Wales-France game two years ago. Yeah. We're talking about genuine defending your line as if it, your, you know, your life depends on it and to win like that was incredible um, and I think at that point we thought well we got to two finals you know we can keep building got a few more signings um, and I think that was quite an interesting transition because like any team once you hit the peak there's a lot of people who naturally unfortunately rest in their laurels or don't work quite as hard because you haven't got that pain of not doing it or not making it Um and that's where we probably fell a little bit short for the next two years. Uh, certainly the next year, we didn't do as well. Lost to Leicester in the semis. The year after, we blitzed the league, but mucked up the semi-final at home to Northampton, who just out, outworked us and more physical. And that's where it was quite tough, I think, having these conversations with each other. There was some unrest in certain points. But the year after, we brought it together and did incredibly well and got to two finals, 
2014 and lost both of them. You know, to lose the European Cup final is not a problem because it's the best club side I've ever seen and what I think we'll ever see. That two long um, team, yeah, they were brilliant. Yeah, obviously excluding Saracens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, nothing will compete with that Toulon side with the international experience. There wasn't a weak link at any stage no. in that team. They were incredible. Um, and they beat us fair and square. But then the week later, um, to lose in extra time to a try which, you know, Rightly or wrongly, hasn't ever been proved it was a try. It's quite a tough pill to take. Um, and I think that was when the wheels could have come off. The way we're doing things isn't right. People are unhappy. And again, that year was a massive turning point. We struggled that year. We couldn't get fluency. We lost last minute games everywhere. We were really quite not our best at all. And there was a lot of you know bits and pieces here and there. Reality was... We got it together a bit. Lost to Clermont in the semi-finals of Europe over in Saint Etienne, which was an incredible game and one we could have got close to. But we snuck into the playoffs because we hadn't played well all year. Um, and the last game of the season, we had to get more points in Exeter. The way things changed, amazing. We were playing London Welsh and we had to win by sort of sixty-five points or something. And I think we were one try up at half time. We're like, what the hell? And then scored two. Um, and then we blitzed them and scored, you know, like a try every two minutes after that. And we, we got through, went to Northampton, who had won it the year before, had been killing the Premiership that year. Um, and we went to their ground and beat them with the best defensive performance you'll see from a team and from Jack Berger in the history of. Yeah, he, he just loves um, bloody smashing he, people. He, he smashed people. <laughs> the Bunapolas got four turnovers each, I think, were incredible. And we, and we battered them, beat them. Mm. Um, Jim Mann, there wasn't, it was a, a bit bitter afterwards and, you know, says it all. And, and we went to the final and uh, playing Bath, who had demolished Leicester and worst warm-up I've ever been part of in my life. Charlie Hodgson was the second-choice fly-half he walked through our defence in um, in the uh, in the sort of practice team run bit. Ten minutes for kickoff, three times in a row. Like he was he was jogging, <laughs> embarrassed because we were defending that badly. And we were like, "What is wrong with us? We're playing a Bath team who have played the best rugby all year. Jonathan Joseph has opened everyone up. George mm. Ford's running rings around everyone, and we can't even defend our second team. We've got, we've got seven players and a coach on the wing and we've got 15. It was like horrific. But we, we, we played really well and won that game. And I think that was a big turning point because it was actually, no, we are doing things right. We've got to this point. You know, we, we're on the right path. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep going. And that whole year, after the two losses, we used the mantra of um, the Stonecutter, Stonecutter's Creed, which is... A stone cutter goes to stone and he smashes the stone, you know, again and again. And he knows that, you know, he smashes it 999 times and that 1,000th blow, the stone cracks. But he knows it's not that one blow is more aggressive or more forceful than any of the others, but it's the hard work put in of the, you know, 999 before that. And I think we try to use that mantra, which was, you know, not stolen, taken from uh, the San Antonio Spurs, who we had a good relationship with, which was you go back to the ball and you know you're doing the right thing. Just keep pounding away at the rock. Keep pounding away at the rock. Keep doing those things, doing the basics again and again. Keep pounding. And we used that, and it was really powerful for us. And we still 
go back to it now and again. But that was um, quite a big season for us because then we did get silverware. We weren't just a team that lost in finals. And then the year after was 2015 when we won the dub. No, we won... Uh, it's bad that I can't remember. Uh, so it went, yeah, Bath we beat. Then we won the double. Um, and then we won just Europe. And then we won the Premiership and Europe again this year. And I think it just was one of those things where we got over that hurdle originally where we could have faltered. And I think that's where that season, as well as early on, where we went, right, hang on. We've got the players. We are doing the right thing. And, and you know, every year there's... This year, you know, even the double, everyone's like, how rosy it must be. Still, like, can be disharmony and a few issues at certain points. And you go through the international period and it's really tricky. Yeah. You're down resources. But I think overall, we know that the way we do things is right. The way we prepare for people is right. Uh, the way we look after the academy. We really do try and, you know, live our values day to day. And the key is that we really try and improve. We're all, we have a group of core players we're constantly looking to improve and get better, and that rubs off on everyone. So, I'd say that's what really stands out. Mm. And to kind of compare the two disappointments, as you said, every year it's never rosy. Uh, even the time you win ten in a row, there's a bad time at Christmas. Say, for instance, last season when you boys Saracens, you didn't really perform that well in Europe. You got knocked out early on. And you had a different coach, say. Uh, so year, so year before. Yeah, a year before this year, I should say, two years ago. Yeah, so um, the lens, yeah, yeah. Cool. And yeah. you've got Mark McCall heading up, and like, how important was his guidance through that? Because it was obviously going to be a learning curve, and well, then also in order for you to be able to react to that disappointment and get back on the horse, which you did this year. Like, how big of a learning was last? Sorry, the two years ago. When things well, seem I think, to go according I think to plan. it speaks I think it speaks volumes that the over the last two years or so, the leadership group has taken more and more of a hold of the as you always hear, the players take more and more hold of things and, and take it the direction they want to go and the coaches facilitate as you get more experienced. And that's been happening for a number of years. But I think particularly after that Leinster game, of course we were at disappointed we'd lost. I think the manner in which we 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 didn't even give ourselves a chance, which was disappointing in our eyes. It's never been us. You know, ultimately, the, the scoreline wasn't that big in the end, but we knew we hadn't been close enough to winning it. Uh, and we created good chances, and that, but we hadn't that taken them. I think it was easier to take than if it had been really close and you feel like, oh, a bounce of a ball or this or that. Um, and as well, we'd known that year, we'd made it half ourselves by having to play the quarterfinal away at Leinster because we'd lost to Clermont two times in a row um, and we hadn't been at our best. So we accepted that. But after that, the learning and where we took our game, if you not remember, but I remember it vividly, the next six, seven, eight games we played was the best rugby I've seen us play for, for years. Mm. We were, apart from this Leinster game this year, we were... Unbelievable. We played semi-final against Wasps, who were a top side then, and we physically murdered them. Yeah, they scored a few tries with Wade and a few others, but we absolutely annihilated them at home. And the weeks before that, we went after everyone. And we talked about that Leinster game being physically, not like they, they, they were more physical than us. They beat us at the breakdown. They beat us physically at the, uh, at the game line. 
And that's a horrible feeling to have when you feel like you're the team that are most physical in the competition and you want to be the most physical team. And reality was that the players came back and said, right, what do we want to hang our hat on? How are we going to get better? What are we going to learn from this? Um, and we took a lot of learning from the game and came back a stronger team and said we're still in a competition. We can't sulk about losing one. We're in a competition. Let's fight to the, the right to the end and, and, and get the win. Mm-hmm. And we did. And, you know, we, we beat whilst in the final uh, semi-final by a good amount and we and we did beat Exeter by quite a lot in that final you know four tries to one I think it was yeah, in it was the, convincing yeah and it, we showed that you know when we're at our best you know how good we can be and yeah you know, I'm not I know in that Leinster game we were missing key players and that's fine but it wasn't a Saracen's performance and we deep down we knew that and they outworked us and were more physical and that that was hard to take as players because that's like you know we hang our hat on mm. um so yeah, so that was probably the best learning from that those game that game. Mm, and then obviously, as you said, you get get back on the horse this year. And what, actually, I need to sorry, I almost missed that there. One of the questions I got was this year getting back on track, and it's more of the lighthearted side of things. And as you said earlier, Saracens, it's more about just the rugby. It's about going on these trips, enjoying yourselves. And I'd be I'd be ridiculed if I didn't ask you about the infamous <laughs> three day bender you and the boys yeah. had after, and you had the Snapchats, you had the Instagram stories. At one stage, I'm pretty sure Jamie George's address was popped up. Um, unfortunately, it was George Crew. A lot George of people think it's Jamie George. It's George Crew who, um, yeah, probably wasn't, wasn't happy. No, he wasn't. And like, um, what what really went down and. Ultimately, like how how does one end up in full kiss wearing a purse around his waist and being on the absolute tear for whatever seventy two hours in full kiss? I think you've asked a good question. There is how does one end up like that? That that no one's really asked yet how <laughs> how it comes about. Um, I guess there's no real easy way to answer except that it's not often you you win your European Cup um, and you don't know when the last is. Now people can say, yeah, well, you've won three of them. It's not a point. You don't know when you'll ever be in a final again. You don't know how it'll go. I think the manner of which we played, um, you know, to beat a Leinster side who had 13 Irish internationals, an Aussie and a Kiwi, um, and the quality they had, the way they'd gone around about the tournament the year before, knowing how good they were, and the way we did it from adversity at the start, losing Macabrina Pola, losing our tight head, Marrow being off in the Simbin, I think was... Was was amazing, and we played so well in that second half. And for uh, you know, Leinster fans to turn around and say you were the better team must mean that you've done pretty well. I don't know if you're a Leinster fan yourself. I, don't know. I am. Um, I am. I am. Yeah, um, you might not agree with that. No, no, I do. I do. When Johnny Sexton um, and people are admitting it after, it's pretty comprehensive. When you hear that, so yeah, I think you know, it's no such thing. I don't think it was comprehensive in Europe and Cup form, but I think there was an element of we played really, really yeah, quite better well. Better team and, won, no, no argument. And, and that's because of that feeling and the sort of perfect storm that we knew we didn't have the, the Premiership semi-final until the following weekend Yeah, um, meant that we could enjoy it. And I had some um, personal tragedy in the family this year and a few other things. And I just think I felt, you know, from then I was like, look, I've, my days are numbered playing yeah. rugby. You feel like you're invincible, and I want to really cherish being with my mates when we win. And I, and then the whole life I'd always been, oh, you win, you get back to the grindstone, you go again, 
next challenge, next challenge. And that could be the end of season. It could be the beginning of the season, whatever it is. Whenever you win, you go next challenge, next challenge. And I think as a sportsman, that is quite healthy because it means you never rest on your laurels. You're always looking to improve. And, and I agree with it. But there are times when you have to really cherish the wins. Yeah. And I did that in a sense. And I said to myself, I wanted to enjoy it. That's not to say that it was planned in any sense. Um, <laughs> the kit was semi-planned. The three days were not planned in any way. So I basically um, have always, after a European Cup win, gone in my full kit. It started with a bet with Chris Ashton that I wouldn't go in my full kit after we beat, uh, after in Leon and we beat Racing Metro. And so... I wore my kit, went out that night, and then the next day I wore it. He got in fancy dress as well as part of the bet, and off we went. But and I did it again uh, after the Clermont game, um, and unfortunately I had to get the train from Edinburgh Waverley through the middle of Edinburgh, walk through in my boots and my kit, and a few too many people saw me, unfortunately, but that was life. This time around, same thing, you know, wear my kit, enjoy it. The problem was I stayed at George Crew's house on the Sunday <laughs> night after a debaucherous night yeah. and um, a very late one. And there I was feeling um, disheveled, shall we say, on the Monday morning. Uh, what am I going to do? And Maka Vunapola, sort of my um, sort of chief partner in crime, yeah. um, uh, sort of text me saying what's the plan today and I'm kind of in charge of the, the social aspect and where we go what we do um, and I said oh I don't know mate I'm, I'm struggling we came a barbe- barbecue at yours and he said oh I don't know and then I had this genius idea where I'm in George Cruz's house George is not there because he's gone to get physio and the cheeky I don't know if I can swear no um, you can swear yeah the cheeky bugger that I am, I went and um, went, oh, well, Crusoe's not here. Why don't we have a party at his house? <laughs> of which Mako, who, if you ever heard him interview, loves to abuse George, yeah. was, all right, I'll be there in a second. And I hear the wheels screeching about four <laughs> minutes later as he rolls in, smashes the door and goes, let's have it then. Um, and we both kind of got through our pain by the fact that we thought we were stitching George up. But when we put on the group to everyone to come over, um, it pretty much was uh, Mako's Mafia, so his cousin, uh, his other cousin, bringing, bringing the drinks, and then Billy, and then about three others or so. So it was about seven of us And once George got back. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was nice. We just chilled in the garden, had a lot of drinks, and then we went on a, a pub crawl through St Albans on a Monday at four, four or five o'clock. So oh, that's reckless. Um, <laughs> it, it was it was madness. Yeah, looking back, it was quite funny in hindsight. There was a rumor that um, not a rumor. There's a true story that um, two lads turned up at George Crew's house uh, at about four thirty-five. So after five o'clock, I think, after work with a crate of beers, <laughs> and his housemate opened the door <laughs> and was like, uh, "Can I help you?" Yeah. Like, uh, we're here for the house party. Alex Good put it on there. <laughs> he was like, yeah, they've gone, mate. They're in town. And they were pretty devastated. Oh, um, as you would be, in fairness. No, and I, I tell you what, I swear down, if they had turned up when we'd been there, I would have let them in with open arms and it would have been a genius story. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, they were just a little bit too late. Um, 
but yeah, so that was, and then we just carried on really. And yeah, I woke up on Tuesday morning, still in my kit, as feared up as a man's ever been in his life, um, wondering why my social media had gone mad, yeah. pa- panicking I'd done something horrifically wrong, um, and then realizing it was relatively positive, I think. Oh, yeah, um, it was very positive globally. <laughs> well, no, it, well, it really was, but I was still quite feared up in that I thought my head coach was not best pleased, um, and he does like to worry a bit, mm. uh, Mark, and uh, rightly so. That's what you have to do as a head coach. Yeah, exactly. But... Um, it was when uh, I got a few stories back that he wasn't best pleased and that he was disappointed that I still thought I was a student and that did I think I was 17 years old now. Um, and it was only when the um, the owner of the club stood up at our end of season awards dinner, which was that Tuesday night. I remember seeing said, that. <laughs> yeah, and said how much he loved um, the full kit and the celebrations and that, he thought it was one of the best things ever that I just went, Oh, phew. Yeah, thank God. I've got job security. The <laughs> owner likes me. <laughs> so um, that's kind of how it happened, really. It was um, obviously a bit planned in the start and then very spontaneous to do the three days and continue. And the bum bag only came on the last day when um, I went to get a shirt for Liam Williams, a really bad shirt yeah. from Top Man because he had no clothes. And I was picking his gear for the day. So I was going to town on picking the worst Hawaiian shirts. And and I saw these bum bags and thought, oh, they'll be terrible. Then looked to myself and thought, where am I going to put my keys, my wallet, you know, my phone, yeah. um, some chewing gum? Because the socks, they're going to fall out. And so I thought, oh, a bum bag would be quite useful. And clearly not worried about how I looked at that stage in my kit. I went, fantastic. And so the bum bag was added to it and seems to be the key ingredient for why that and the gum shield of why people love it. So, yeah, no, it's was, it was um, pretty, pretty awesome to see. Oh, yeah. It's good crack. Yeah, it was a lot. I think going back, ultimately, ultimately, it was a lot of fun celebrating with the guys who had um, worked incredibly hard that year together and enjoying ourselves. Um, and we were under no illusions. You know, Mark was wary that we had the semi-final coming up and we didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, but we were very focused. We weren't going to let that chance slip. And, um, you know, we we played well in that semi-final against Gloucester and um, went on to the final and, and put a big shift in. Yeah. Well, the, the type of uh, memories you look back on in 10 years and go, oh, I remember that time. We were 30 minutes away from George Cruz having a bunch of random people sleeping in his living room pissed. So, <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, I mean, that is true. I mean, they are the bits that you just don't forget because yeah, it was so much fun. And uh, I think, it, you know, it went well because media, social media wise, because I didn't actually post anything about myself in my kit at any stage until right at the end. And it was on the floor because yeah. all the lads were doing, all the lads were just putting up pictures. I was like, lads, yeah. I'm trying to go incognito. They're like, good one. Like, I'm only joking. I'm in my full kit. I'm obviously worried people won't know who I am. Oh, exactly. um, so yeah, no, it was, it was good fun. Um, well, the last topic I want to get on and cover just briefly is the other side of your career, which is the international stage. And as I've said, you've gotten multiple caps, you had your first one several years ago. And just the two things I'd like to focus in on as quick as we can is you obviously were involved in that 2015 World Cup. I'm sure being an Englishman yourself, there was huge hype around us. There was huge expectations going in. There was a great win against the All Blacks leading up to us. 
everything seemed to be peaking right at the right time. And like, even if you look at the coaching staff now, whether it's Lancaster with Leinster, Andy Farrell with Ireland and the other coaches as well, they've all gone on to do really good things uh, post-World Cup with their respective sides. Like, is there any, like, sports sport at the end of the day? People can win games, favourites can lose games, blah, blah, blah. But, like, is there any things you look at and was like, you know what, that's probably why we were kind of at 80, 90% in that tournament and we didn't quite perform as well as we probably could have. I've been asked this a few times. I think it's quite hard to really say, to be honest with you. Um, I, I always look at it and go, on paper, we had a great side. We've done well. I think, I think Stuart would say um, there were things that were, were difficult. And it was his first World Cup, first kind of big tournament. And that is one thing that was harder to deal with because I think if he'd had his time again, the one thing he would have changed would have been he probably would have nailed his squad down a bit quicker. We were going into those last warm-up games and we were still fighting for a lot of places. Um, And it meant perhaps the team he wanted to start with had not had enough time together in the uh, leading into it. Um, But apart from that... To say why it went wrong, um, it's quite hard to put your finger on any one thing. I don't think the group bought into it enough as uh, to really fight together. Um, and that's not aimed at anyone particularly. Christ, that's just... I don't think we were close enough a group, um, really. Uh, and that will always harm you, ultimately. Um, I think... I think it's really hard to put a finger on it, to be honest. I've thought about it a lot. As you said, we had very good coaches. We had you know, good people involved. We had top players. Maybe it's a case of um, the balance perhaps wasn't there as much as it, it could have been, but you, know, you can only pick the players that are in front of you. Um, I, I, I can't really put an answer to it, I'm afraid. It's, it's quite hard. Um, my only thing was maybe we could have picked the squad a bit quicker mm. earlier. And so for the three warm-up games, you see how Eddie's perhaps done it this year, he's tried to learn from that, is to pick guys, a smaller squad early, and therefore they all get a lot of game time. And that's, you know, that's not a, there's a lot of method in that, and I get that. Um, but the reality is, it's quite hard to say why one, one, one team went well and one didn't. We prepared well, um, we was in a home country, um, it'd be interesting to know. You know, we we played a well side who came back in the last ten minutes and did something that we didn't think was possible. And um, that Australian side were, were very good in that tournament. I I can't tell you exactly why, and I don't know if anyone can. I don't know if Jordan Lancaster can tell you what he would have done differently. Um, because there's a lot of guys in that team who aren't bad players who have gone on to get more and more caps, played well for England and are are top players. So sometimes the the whole Home World Cup, two big games, and really it's one big game there against Wales, just goes against you in the last last 10 minutes. And next thing you know, you're, you're in the back end and you're playing an Australian side who are just 
pumped full of energy. They were in great, great state, in good place, and they beat us mm. comfortably. So I, I can't really add. To, I can't really add too much to that. I'm afraid. No, that makes no makes sense. And even Lancaster has gone on multiple radio shows, and he can't. There's certain elements, as he said, he would change little things, but his overall opinion is like there is no be all end all answer that explains the whole thing because ultimately that is sport sometimes things just don't uh, don't work out the way you intend them to yeah i think what made it hard for him was uh, for example owen Farrell was injured during the six nations and saracens weren't playing that well he then came back at the back end of the year and played unbelievably well and was the man of the match in the final against Bath. And having gone maybe the Bath way during the Six Nations and moved the ball a lot and George Ford playing brilliantly and England just losing on points in that dramatic last game, it came down to um, came to the final and Saracen's way over Bath way won and won convincingly and maybe that just put some doubt into in which way was he going was he going George in a very basic way and it made it harder and we went we just go for the more pragmatic way but maybe the change there we just didn't have enough time together to gel and that's why I say whatever way we're going to play if we had all three games just to do it with the 30, 31, 31 man squad it would have been perhaps easier but because it was then Stuart was such a good guy, he found it hard to cut people who he, you know, he'd had it, who, who he'd coached his whole life. And, you know, that's because he's a good man. And I get that. Uh, and maybe his learning is to be more ruthless um, at the start and just go, right, this is my score, this is what I'm doing. And then we just go all in the same direction. But it, it made it perhaps harder in that sense. I don't know. But, it, 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 you know, we could have done it anyways and still have the same result. So it's hard to say. Okay. And lastly, before. The quick quick fire questions and I'll let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Um this year with England, there's a lot of um confidence around the squad. The World Cup with say the All Blacks losing a few games more than they did previously towards World Cup. So there's a lot of chat about the World Cup and how competitive it'd be. But from an sorry, an individual point of view with England the media do gravitate towards, say, someone like Cipriani. Why is he not in? Rob Shaw, yourself, Danny Kerr. I know Chris Ashton's staying at home, but there's a lot of big quality players that were, say, excluded. But I'm just saying from your own personal point of view, like you had a very successful season yet again. You won individual awards. You won team awards as well. Like, was it a very tough year for you from going from... Like, I'm playing really well. I'm really successful at club level. Yet then, whenever you thought about the international stage, you were getting frustrated and even referring back to your early days, you always felt that the coaches just weren't giving you the chance you needed. Um, or was it easy to kind of separate that and just focus on what you're doing with your club? I think um, I think ultimately in that question, I learned to live with it over the last few years um, on the basis that... I knew that Eddie didn't want to pick me after the Australia tour in 16, I think it was. We just won the double. Um, I got man of the match in the Premiership final. And I was in, got player of the year for the Premiership. And I was in great form. And I was moving as well as I ever moved. And I, and I really felt like I was huge impact. And went to Australia 
and Mark Petter wasn't playing that well either, but he got picked. And some of the things were said to me I felt were pretty unfair, but, you know, you, you move on, you get on with it. And I came back from that tour, you know, having not played a minute and was, was down. And I think deep down I knew, but it took my, my best mate, who's in rugby now and a wonderful coach, to turn around to me and go, well, he, he, he's never going to pick you. And it was pretty abrupt and blunt, and it's not the sort of thing people want to hear. But I did. Yeah. He goes, well, you know he's not. If he's not going to pick you now, during that period, then he's never going to pick you. And he was bang on, to be honest. And I think from that point on, you know, I got picked for a Fiji game that autumn, and that's the last time I played for England or was involved in England camp. And I think from then on, you just know that you're not his cup of tea for whatever reason. Uh, it's not a personal thing. It's just purely he doesn't want to pick you. You're yeah. not the sort of player that he wants in that position. And so from then on, you sort of develop a defensive mechanism, um, a thick coat. You just sort of thick skin, sorry. You just go with, uh, well, he doesn't want to pick me. So, you know, he's never going to. And and therefore, every time the squad gets announced and everyone's like, oh, how can we not involve? It's a joke. You kind of switch off from it because you know you're not going to get picked. And so it's easy for you to be like, well, I knew I wasn't getting picked. Um, and so you deal with it and you listen to people who you know really well and you go, am I playing well? Yeah. Can I do this better? Yeah. Listen to them. Move on. Carry on. Because um, otherwise you just you just become bitter, become angry. Um, and it gets you nowhere. I've I found that it really doesn't get you anywhere in this world um, to be like that. Mm. And I'm quite philosophical. Of course I'm, of course I'm angry and disappointed. But I don't aim that at anywhere or anyone. Or, and I look at it and go, right, I've got to channel this anger and put it into playing really well for Saracens. If I play unbelievably well for Saracens and we win loads, then I'll be as happy as I can be because that's all I can control. All I can control yeah. is how I play. And for years, I was like, well, all I control is myself. So if I play unbelievably well, it, it, you know, I have to force his hand to pick me. And unfortunately, in this sense, I don't know if it matter how well I play, if that will change. But I know how I've done everything I can do. And winning at Saracens means even more for me because of that. And therefore, I get through it and go, well, you know, that's everything. You know, what more do I need? Um, yeah. and the England stuff is is tough of course it's tough but I can't change that that's one man's opinion who is picking a squad he's done very well with the England team there's no you know there's nothing, nothing I can say about that and I wish them well but you know I know that I wasn't really going to be in there um, I would say on this World Cup camp I thought I had a chance and I think that's the first time I was annoyed at myself because I allowed myself to think I'm playing that well I think I can get in the squad. And then from there, I backed myself in training to showcase why I should be there. And that didn't happen. And that was, I was a bit annoyed at myself for allowing that thought into my head. And that was why I was yeah, a, no, a bit tougher. You. But, you know, that's, that's life. Mm. No, it sadly is. And it's, as you said, it's just one person's opinion, whether they're right or wrong is up really for the public to debate. And yeah. I even remember hearing Jamie Carragher last week talking about it. And he was saying, to be honest, I think if I had a different England coach, I would have had twice as many caps. And just as you said, horses for courses, some coaches like certain characteristics in the player, certain skill sets. Exactly. And as you said, you're very much appreciated with Saracens. And as you've said, you've individually done very well for them. So if you keep doing that, as you said, it'll keep you happy enough to be able to park 
the exactly. the mindset or thoughts yeah, towards England. So, ah, look, you know that's that's life. Um, I mean, I would say that to finish on a funnier note, someone someone said to me the other day, "Who's your toughest opponent?" And I jokingly said, "Eddie, Eddie Jones." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah it's quite fair funny. answer. Yeah, um, but yeah, have you got quick fire because I have to shoot soon. Sorry. Yeah, no, okay. no, I will get onto them now. I'll just dive right into them. There's only four or five here. Shouldn't take long at all. So this was sent in. If you were playing in a final, what three players would you most like to have in your team? Current players. Yep. Well, I'll go with two answers. If I go, Saracens three, and then maybe a, a three I haven't played with. Um, okay. So I would go Owen Farrell. I would say Macabinopolo, but he was so useless in the final. I don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not reliable. Play 80. Uh, Maratoji, and because he was unbelievable in that final, and he's a top lad and one of my best mates, Liam Williams. Good shout. So, so a mixture of two backs, two full backs, and uh, no, sorry, three backs actually. I've only got one, I've only got one forward. Um, oh, well, if not, um, Billy Vinopolo and Maro and Faz. So, yeah, balance okay. out. And, and then, the favourite, yeah, the mix. Do you want to do your um, mixture one? David Pocock, best player I've ever played against. Played it in under 18s, 19s, 20s. He was an animal. So he'd be in there. Uh, Bowden Bauer, because he can play everywhere. I mean, he's a talent. And another forward, who's very good. Um, Dane Coles, I think, is world class. Or oh, Malcolm yeah. Marks, one of the two. Okay. Uh, the favourite coach you've ever had? Uh, can be a skills coach or backs coach oh, or head coach, whichever. My under-13s head coach was Richard Mitchell, who's now headmaster at Wellingbrook School. He was the first guy to get me to really think about rugby and was outstanding and um, taught me a lot and discipline. So it's easier than calling one of my coaches now because they might listen. But Richard yeah, exactly. Mitchell was, uh, was very good. And what is the best advice you have ever received? I received it but heard it by... Kevin Sinfield and actually Gary Neville said a similar thing when they came to England camps to chat to us um, and it's what you do behind closed doors basically when no one's watching that matters it's mm. easy to cut corners when no one's there it's cold it's wet no one's watching you don't have to make the line you can shortcut it you can eat what you want you can do what you want it's easy when there's people watching you you're with your mates there's other coaches there like that's the easy bit. It's the hard decisions when you're not, when no one's there that's, that matters. And I think that resonated with me quite a bit. Um, and it's probably what stands, what people, why people in professional sport, sport, the top end, stand out because they don't cut those corners, they give everything to it, and um, you know they never cut the corners on the field, and therefore they put that hard work in, and it, it pays dividends. Well said. And last three. So, your favorite TV comedy character of all time? I don't know if he's. He probably is a comedy character. Johnny Johnny Drama from Entourage. He's one of okay. the funniest yeah, blokes in the world. Second last one. Craziest thing you've ever seen in a rugby match? Um, I don't know, craziest. Um, and it was playing for my first team. I was sixteen, and the t- the fly half got caught in a ruck. And the inside centre left footed was like, oh, okay. And the coach was like, get rid of it. And we're on our own line. So he's in, he's in the dead ball line. And he just said to the prop, who's the stupidest bloke in the world, and he's like, come on my inside, come on my inside ball. And the head coach is like, kick it off. 
And so the sort of 13, it's on the left-hand side, goes 10, 12, goes, oh, yeah, yeah, kick it, kick. So he goes, yeah, hit me, hit me. And he's on our dead ball line. And he catches the ball. And he's obviously told the prop on his inside still that he's got an inside ball, which is, me- you know, mesmerising to me outside. I'm thinking, well, we're behind our own line. Yeah. And he runs up, takes two steps, has a, the biggest, widest arc of a left foot you'll ever see. I'm pretty sure he was either going to go two feet off the ground the skimmer or he was going to chop it so bad it was going to go up in the air. Um, but as he threw the ball up in the air, the prop's still running on the inside. He clubs the prop so hard on his Achilles, <laughs> like absolutely wellies him. I still cry with laughter selling it. He hits him so hard, they both go down in absolute agony. Like it was two stack of potato. Like, ah, he's here in the leg. I, I am crying with laughter on the field. I think it's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life, seen in my life. I, I can't laugh. And the head goes like, Cody, sort this out. And it basically just gets lobbed back to me and I just hack it off from my shin and I am in stitches the funniest thing while well, they both blame each other for what happened oh crying crying oh, so that was the funniest yes. thing I'm seeing and last but not least sum yourself up in three words um, lively odd um, friendly nice well yeah no Alex that wraps it up thank you very much I know we went a bit over time but listen I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know pretty much your whole life story there condensed into 80 minutes. So I just want to thank you for taking time out, uh, getting it done. I know you're probably busy with preseason and other bits and bobs. So I do really appreciate you taking uh, time out to have a chat. It's no dramas. I enjoyed it. I told you I'd be a a talker. Um, And unfortunately, I'm not running back to preseason. I'm going to get dinner from my mate who lost fancy football to eight of us <laughs> has to, last year has to pay for us all for dinner. So just going to make sure I get there. So cool. appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I hope it comes out well. Let me know um, if you could send me a link. That'd be great. I will. I will. I'll keep in touch, Alex. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Cheers.